This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making us a part of your day. The ag markets are moving on this Wednesday. We are seeing some green on the screen in most of the grains to start the day. We've also got a lot of conversations coming up on today's show. We're going to talk about the soybean market here in just a minute with Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. And then in segment two, Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, is going to join us. There was a study released earlier this week, which claimed that ethanol is worse for the environment than traditional fossil fuels. Jeff is going to set the record straight on that for us here in just a little bit. Later on in the program, we're going to talk to Matt Roberts. He was a uh, former professor at Ohio State University. Now he's out on his own as an economist, and he's been tracking the growth of the electric vehicle market and just how that growth might be impacted in the years to come. We'll hear from Matt later in the show. And finally, we're going to talk to John Linder of the National Corn Growers Association. He's on the board there, and he was recently appointed to the Maisal board, comprised of growers and affiliates from Argentina, Brazil, and the United States. We'll get the update from Jim at the end of, excuse me, from John at the end of the show. We're going to talk to Jim Sutter right now. Jim, the soybean markets are moving and all eyes are on South America. We talk about Argentina quite a bit with their ability to export soy products. But Jim, with the year looking like it is and the drought on the Parana River, how does Argentina's soy export potential look this year? Well, I think that's a great question, Mike, and people are really watching that closely. And I was trying to think of a good analogy. You know, the problem that they're facing today is that their river levels are so low, it's limiting the ability to fill up a ship. And I just was uh, heard, heard last week that there was a vessel of soybean meal that loaded and it was going to uh, another uh, country. And instead of taking the customary 50,000 tons that it would load, because of the low water levels, it only was able to load 35 tons. So imagine what that does to the freight rate. You know, think about it as, uh, you know, a truck in one of the northern states in the U.S. when they get the spring uh, road restrictions And instead of loading 50,000 pounds, it only loads 35,000 pounds. It really reduces efficiency and increases the cost of shipping. So that's the first problem that Argentina faces. And the second problem is their small crop. Right. They're getting it from both sides, Jim. And we'll talk about the crop. Obviously, combines are going to be running in Argentina here. Well, it won't be too terribly much longer. But let's talk first about the soy production system in Argentina. They're not selling a lot of whole beans. Is that right? That is correct. Most of what Argentina exports is done in the form of both meal and oil. They they have a very large processing industry that was put in place. There were really some, some tax incentives that tax the export of soybeans, whole soybeans, higher than the export of meal and oil, and then even biodiesel had a further tax reduction. So most of what they historically have exported is in the form of these finished products. That's correct. So, Jim, as Argentina is exporting these finished products, both meal and oil, are they going everywhere around the world, or does Argentina have a few buyers that they typically work with? Well, Europe is a large market for them. They have uh, long-term agreements with some of the feed industry in, in Europe, so they have a steady kind of supply going that direction. And then in some South America, excuse me, Southeast Asian markets, they also have regular uh, supply agreements. Indonesia is a large importer of meal, and that's one that, given the proximity of being a little bit south of the equator, Argentina fits very well for them. So that is a that is a significant market for them. So there are some normal places they go. And I anticipate this year with the small crop that they are expecting, we may see some increased business for U.S. soybean meal going into some of those traditional Argentine markets. And that is what I was curious about, Jim. Obviously, if Argentina's production is suffering, somebody else has to provide those beans, those products, the meal and the oil around the world. I certainly hope it would be America. As you look at I want to say easy pickups for U.S. soybean exports, formerly Argentina's. Who has the the best outlook this year? 
Well, I think the U.S., you know, because we had a good crop last year, despite our, we had some weather problems in the U.S., but thanks to uh, great U.S. farmer production practices, we still grew a good crop. I think we will see pickups in demand. And we've seen a robust sales recently for soybean meal with destinations like those that I just mentioned, going to uh, both Europe and Southeast Asia. And continuing also, we have a very strong market share in the Americas region, so in, in countries in, in Latin America. So I think the U.S. will enjoy strong demand. And the other thing, Mike, that we have to consider is uh, the Brazilian situation. And we continue to read about and hear about reductions in the crop outlook for Brazil. And I think that also then will play well for U.S. whole bean exports going to traditional destinations like, you know, China is a big one. But there are many other markets around the world where the U.S. will be called upon to be an early and large supplier, I believe. And Jim, I mean, it seems as though watching these export sales reports, we're already getting that call. Do you anticipate export volumes to increase throughout this whole spring? I think it might take a little bit of a break here, Mike, because where, where, Brazil, even though their crop is down, they're quite a bit ahead of normal in terms of their harvest pace. Last year, they only had about 7% harvested at this time. And the most recent estimate I saw said had them over 25% harvested right now as a country. So I think they'll push some exports out here. And so we may have a little bit of a slowdown in U.S. exports. But what I think will happen is we'll, we'll be normally we don't see our export pace pick up again until, say, September, October, that time. I think we will be called upon much earlier, May, June, July, and, and we'll probably won't dip as much as we normally dip. So I think we'll just have a much more even and then accelerated earlier export pace out of the U.S. Jim, on the export front, obviously we've been talking for the past year or so about the Biden administration's lack of movement on uh, free trade agreements or trade agreements with other countries more broadly. You're plugged in to the folks in Washington, D.C. Does it seem like the Biden admin might be making changes to that? Are they going to get more aggressive in uh, getting some international deals signed? Well, I think what they're really focusing on, what I hear that from them is that they're focusing on enforcing the trade agreements that we have in place and making sure that the trade agreements that are there are working, which is good news. You know, we want to make sure that those that have already been negotiated in previous years, that they continue to deliver what they, what they were intended to deliver. So I see I, I see a very uh, pronounced effort on that. I know that they're working. There's a lot of talk lately about the phase one situation with China and how that will continue to play out. And then I, I think they are also thinking about new free, new free trade agreements, and certainly they will be looking at that. But I think the enforcement of the existing ones is a higher priority for them right now. That's how I read it, Mike. And enforcement of trade deals, Jim, does that always come back to tariffs if there's noncompliance? I think it, it comes back to both tariffs if there is noncompliance, but it also comes back to uh, SPS agreements, uh, sa sanitary, phytosanitary issues, so really market access issues, small things that tend to get in the way, so non-tariff uh, trade barriers. Non-tariff trade barriers, that makes sense. Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, thanks for taking the time to shed some light on that industry with us. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll talk to Jeff Cooper from the Renewable Fuels Association when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're choosing exceptional weed control. It controls more weeds than any other soybean system and offers up to 14 days of soil activity on certain small-seeded broadleaf weeds. Plus, you get triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate when used with Extend Flex soybeans. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Claims are based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Pair with a strong weed management program. Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. 
Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to be talking next about ethanol. Since the ethanol industry's founding, or really since it started to grow in the 2000s, there have been times when ethanol has come under fire. Ethanol has been accused of stealing food out of people's mouths. It's, there's been all sorts of attacks on land use. And this week, those attacks resurfaced. Uh, the University of Wisconsin, uh, but several professors there put together a study, and they were questioning the environmental impact of ethanol using a lot of the same talking points we've heard before. Well, I wanted Jeff Cooper, head of the Renewable Fuels Association, to join us and correct the record a little bit, or at least help us understand the numbers they're talking about in the study. Jeff Cooper, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thanks for having me this morning, Mike, and, and you're exactly right. Uh, we have heard a lot of this before from a lot of the same people, so this is really nothing new here. It isn't, but what were the claims in this study, Jeff, that, that really made your ears perk up? Well, again, it's really the same claim that, that some of these folks have been making for, for 10 or 15 years. Uh, their entire thesis is that growth in ethanol production and the renewable fuel standard have caused farmers to, to go out and plow up millions of acres of, of native prairie grass and, and cut down forests so they can grow more corn, so they can plant more corn and soybeans. And uh, they, they use these computer models and satellite images, uh, and then they you know, gather up all this data, and then, and then they say, look, when you take the emissions uh, from tilling this new cropland and you add it to ethanol's carbon footprint, um, you know, now you have ethanol magically being worse uh, or, or no better than gasoline in terms of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And we know that's just uh, absurd. There is no evidence that uh, these, these purported land conversions have happened. Um, EPA and USDA both show that cropland in the U.S. continues to shrink. Uh, the amount of land that's planted to crops in the U.S. today is about 25 million acres less than what it was in 2007 when the RFS was adopted. So cropland is not expanding, um, and therefore it it's really causes us to scratch our heads when you have these researchers asserting again that the RFS and, and biofuels have somehow caused this massive expansion 
uh, in the amount of land that we dedicate to crop production in the United States. Jeff, you mentioned something right there, that these researchers were using computer models uh, filled with with sort of backup data about land use decisions, and they're piling that on top of corn's ethanol, or excuse me, carbon footprint. How much confidence do we have in the numbers that researchers are using, either in this study in particular or more broadly, about the carbon impact of ethanol? Well, we, we don't have any confidence in the numbers that these guys are using. And, and the reason is we, we've looked at, at the data in detail that they're using. And, and just so folks understand really what they're doing here, um, they, they take uh, satellite imagery from let's, a year in time, and, and, and they looked at 2008 and 2016 specifically. Um, and so they, they take these, these satellite photographs um, that look at you know, what was covering the land in 2008 uh, and then they compare that to images of the same parcels of land in 2016. And if it looks different in 2016, uh, they try and figure out, well, what, what changed? What is, you know, what was planted here in t- 2008 um, that's gone and what's planted now in, in 2016? Uh, and then they, they, they take all that and try to cobble together this whole emissions uh, inventory. And, and the problem is the satellites that, that are used to take those images um, can't tell the difference oftentimes between, uh, certainly between grassland types, whether we're talking about pasture or CRP or grass hay or, or you know, truly native grassland, the satellites can't tell the difference between that stuff, and they often can't distinguish between grassland and even wheat or, or other broadcast planted crops. And so, uh, you know, you've got this very air-prone satellite data that these guys are using to cobble together this narrative, and I, and I really want to be clear about something. This is not a study where these researchers asked a question and then they followed the scientific process to try and find some answers. That's, that's not what this is at all. This is a bunch of academics who are being paid by the National Wildlife Federation, by the way, um, who knew exactly what conclusion they wanted, and then they worked backward from there, and so they had to string together all kinds of ridiculous assumptions and cherry-picked data to try to justify this result. And it, it really is. It's the same study we've seen multiple times in the past 10 or 15 years, and, and it has the same flaws. So, Jeff, my question is, we this Groundhog Day, when we're talking about ethanol policy here, particularly these issues, they just keep popping up. Why do they keep yep. popping up? You're plugged in in Washington, D.C. You're connected to the folks. When this study came out, how was it received in Washington? Well, I, I, I guess that's that's the one benefit to, to this. It, it is like Groundhog Day, and it's it's a little bit like the, the boy who cried wolf. After so many times, people stop paying attention to you because they know what you're saying just isn't true, and they know it's been debunked time and time again. And so I think, uh, yes, this is getting some headlines, and it's generating some buzz, and, and certain people are trying to push this out for their own purposes. Um, but I think, uh, by and large, this is falling on deaf ears. And, and again, it's really not hard. To, to look at this study's results and then go look at the USDA data that is easily found on their website to say, did this really happen? Did these acres really expand? Um, are we planting more corn today than we did in 2007? Well, not really. We planted 93.5 million acres in 2007. We planted 93.4 million acres last year, so almost exactly the same. We are planting more corn than we did in the 80s and 90s. That's true. Uh, but we're also planting less wheat, we're planting less cotton and less other crops. So growth in corn acres uh, that we've seen in the last 20 years has come from crop switching, not from plowing under prairie. And that, that data is, is out there for anybody to see. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, because of that, we're not expecting this study to get much traction despite their best efforts and despite the PR machine behind this thing. You, of course, you've got the oil guys quietly pushing this. You've got several environmental groups who, who don't like production agriculture pushing this. Um, but we're not terribly concerned that it gets much traction. Well, that is good to hear, Jeff, because this past year we have seen ethanol really be a bright spot for uh, corn growers, at least in the central part of U.S. basis, has been strong. As you look out here, let's talk the future of ethanol. Jeff, for the remainder of this spring, are you optimistic that that ethanol margins are going to stay profitable for uh, the producers out there? Mike, we, we are optimistic, and that's and I'm I'm glad you asked that because you know people see these headlines and and they see all the stuff about electric vehicles, and they get down in the dumps about the future of ethanol, and that's that's just not where we're at. Uh, the the industry is in really good shape. We're very healthy. We're growing again. Um, you know, had 
the second best year financially last year that we've seen in the past 15 years. Uh, margins were, were very good, um, even with high corn prices. And so it, it's all working. And, and this year, you know, we saw margins compress as we always do this time of year, but uh, things still look pretty good. And, and we've got a, a bullish outlook and, and lots of optimism for demand for ethanol moving forward. We also saw the, saw the highest ethanol blend rate that we've ever seen in 2021. We're, we're well over 10% on average now as E15 and, and E85 continue to expand. So uh, the future is bright and we have plenty of reason for optimism. Uh, and I would just encourage folks not to get too distracted or discouraged by some of the negative headlines that they're, they're seeing. And just remember, this is a concerted campaign. Um, we've seen it before uh, by folks who, who don't like what we're doing. Um, because it's impeding on on their market share. I mean, that's that's really the bottom line here. It is. And Jeff, thinking back to or thinking about the profitability of ethanol, it, margins have been strong. It's been a tough two or three years leading up to uh, the the quality margins of the past two years. But in the industry, is there talk of expansion? We hear that on the bean oil side quite a bit as they're fired up about renewable diesel. Is there room for ethanol, the producers, to continue to expand? Well, I, I guess the the first step here, Mike, is we've got we've got uh, a fair amount of spare capacity that that isn't yet uh, back online yet. We've got the the capacity already installed today to produce about 17 and a half billion gallons of ethanol on an annual basis, and and we produced 15 billion um, in 2021, which was a nice rebound from from 2020 when we had COVID. Uh, so you know, I don't really expect to see any any new plants being built. But I will tell you, uh, producers are, are looking at continuing to improve efficiency and remove bottlenecks from their processes and, and maybe do some, some minor capacity expansions at existing facilities. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's a matter of time before we are uh, producing 17 or, or more billion gallons of ethanol per year uh, once we get export demand really fired up again. Uh, E15 really going on on all cylinders and then, and then other opportunities further down the road like things like sustainable aviation fuels. So we've got a bright future ahead of us, Mike. That's good to hear a bright future for ethanol. I'm sure that'll be under discussion at the National Ethanol Conference coming up very shortly. Jeff Cooper, head of the Renewable Fuels Association, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We'll talk with Matt Roberts about electric vehicles when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thoughts. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, back and forth trade continues here in the grain markets as we continue to watch uncertainties with Russia and Ukraine. Also watching South American weather. We just have choppy markets going on right now as we've turned mostly higher in soybeans and corn with wheat futures trading a little bit lower here as we work through the early rounds on this Wednesday morning. Now, of course, the focus still really on Russia, Ukraine this morning. Traders a bit less confident that we're drifting towards a peaceful solution. The VIX trading near 27 this morning. That's Wall Street's fear index, while the U.S. dollar trading near 95.9. Now we see the pendulum of geopolitical risks supporting money flow into the ag and energy commodities overnight. That's continuing here this morning. However, the overnight strength didn't come close to the selling enthusiasm seen on Tuesday, suggesting that the bulls remain cautious at this point. 
Soybean basis remains stronger than normal in Brazil due to slow farmers selling, but supplies are still increasing at a fast enough pace to soften recent bids to make Brazil more competitive once again. Yet another private source still pegged Brazil's soybean crop near 125 million metric tons on Tuesday, but near-term supplies are increasing. We did get a sale of U.S. soybeans to China this morning for the 22-23 marketing year as well. Let's take a look at current numbers. March corn up four and a quarter, six forty-two and a quarter. July corn up three and a quarter, six thirty-seven. March beans up twenty-two, fifteen seventy-three and a quarter. July beans up twenty and a quarter, fifteen seventy-five and a half. Moderate strength in bean meal and bean oil now. March Chicago wheat down two and a quarter, seven seventy-seven and a half. March Kansas City wheat down two at eight oh four. March spring wheat Minneapolis down six and a quarter, nine forty-six and three quarters. Triple digit strength in hogs with cattle futures lightly lower. Crude oil up $1.59 at $93.66. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. information farmers and ranchers need to know aoa now back to mike pearson welcome back to aoa ladies and gentlemen about a month ago i had the opportunity to go to the south dakota corn growers annual meeting they had a great slate of speakers and one of the presenters was dr matt roberts dr roberts has a phd in economics he was a professor at ohio state university in the ag econ department and a grain marketing specialist with the ohio state extension service he's gone out on his own and he's an independent economist looking at issues that impact agriculture and his program at south dakota corn growers was about electric vehicles. We heard Jeff Cooper talk about it in the last segment. The rise of electric vehicles in recent years has made some folks worry about the future of ethanol a little bit, and that's what Dr. Roberts talked about. So I wanted to get him on the show, share his insights with everybody else that's listening, because this electric vehicle market is hot right now. Matt Roberts, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's talk your presentation, electric vehicles and uh, electrons versus ethanol. Matt, I believe was the title of your program. Where do you see electric vehicles going in 2022? Are they going to take over this market here in the short term? Not at all. Not at all. We have to realize that even though we hear so much about electric vehicles, they they really are the trendy thing, obviously, that, that the media talks about because it's new, it's different. Um, but in reality, in the United States, EVs or hybrid electric vehicles, basically plug-in vehicles, are, are, represent about 2% of total sales. Uh, this year, they're projected to represent maybe 2%, maybe a little higher than that. So these are a far cry from taking over the market. But they're coming out fast and furious. Matt, you know, how concerned do proponents of liquid fuels need to be about these electric vehicles? Well, let's be let's be clear, Mike. There are some benefits. There are some things about electric vehicles that are nice if you're in those target use cases. In fact, I have a son who just moved to California this summer. Uh, he's going out there for graduate school. He needed a new car, and we found him a used Chevy Volt. For his use case, it's great. It's a plug-in hybrid. He's had to fill the gas tank or put gas in the tank three times since September. 
but he's in a college town. Uh, he doesn't drive too much. What he does drive is real close. He's got a charger right across the street uh, in his parking garage there on campus. So it's a very, so he's, he's the poster child of that use case. For many people, though, it doesn't work. Now, we are seeing a lot of automakers get excited about it. They're talking more about it because regulatorily, we see more and more countries, more and more states saying, we want to outlaw internal combustion engines by 2030, 2035, 2040. So if we start looking 10 years, 15 years down the road, liquid fuels are going to start declining in their importance for transportation fuel in the United States and globally. And that does have profound ramifications for ethanol. But even when we talk about, even if we say by, okay, 2030, 30% of all new vehicles are plug-in, it doesn't mean they're pure electric, and it's still only 30%. I think that the, the liquid-fueled vehicles have a really long lifespan left in the American fleet. Well, that's good to hear because I, I love my gas-burning vehicles, Matt, uh, and ethanol-burning vehicles, obviously, as well. You mentioned we're seeing countries, we're seeing manufacturers say we're going to be done producing these internal combustion engines, or as you mentioned, we're not going to allow you to make these internal combustion engines here in eight or ten years. From a, a perspective of, of technology, are we getting too far out over our skis? Can, can we really stop manufacturing internal combustion engines in ten years? I think it's really hard to imagine that actually occurring. Could we, could a country, so the, I, I think the first country that really made an announcement like this uh, was the UK. So the UK said, I believe it's by 2035, they're no longer, maybe 2030, no longer going to allow internal combustion cars to be sold there, new cars to be sold there with, with uh, you know, liquid fuel engines. Now, UK is much smaller. I mean, a 400-mile range in UK is driving the length of the place. So it's radically, radically different proposition there than in the United States. Could it work there? Yes. Could it work in a lot of European countries? Yes. But even there, they recognize the limits. When you look down into automakers' uh, own marketing announcements about this, Mercedes-Benz says, oh, we're going to be all electric by 2030. But that includes plug-in hybrids that still have gas engines, and they also say where market conditions allow. At the end of the day, only those jurisdictions that announce this really are going to force it. And my question is, how will voters feel about it when that day comes? The final piece, yeah. and I think the biggest piece that we understand in agriculture Think how many people out there are nursing pre-death trucks, right, are nursing uh, heavy-duty trucks uh, that have engines pre-tier three, uh, diesel engines pre-tier three, tier three, and they're nursing them. They're trying to keep them going because they don't want to deal with it. That's what we're going to see more and more also as these deadlines come up and pass. And I think, Matt, that highlights uh, what to my mind is the obvious opportunity perhaps for the ethanol industry is electric batteries aren't there to pull a fully loaded semi from a feedlot to a packing plant. At this point, we need some liquid fuel. It sounds like it's going to be renewable. It is. The areas that are hardest to convert. So first of all, as for reasons that don't even need to explain to your audience, Rural areas in their day-to-day -day driving for at the consumer level, at the small business level, those are going to be the last of the consumers to convert because that's where electric makes the hardest. Uh, it's the hardest conversion, uh, as I like to talk about a lot. We can look at Rivian or the F-150 Lightning, some real cool electric trucks out there, 300, 350, 400 miles announced range, right up until you use it like a truck. Uh, recently, there was a test where they put a fully loaded or a 7,000 pound, not even fully loaded, 7,000 pound trailer they pulled with a Rivian. Its range went from 350 miles to 100 miles. So radically different proposition. And then that's not even getting into over the road trucking or airplanes, aircraft fuel. These are both instances 
where we need a lot, a lot, a lot of energy in a very dense, uh, in a very dense weight-conscious form. And liquid fuels dominate um, any form of electricity in that. And so those are going to be the places that we see liquid fuels and increasingly renewable fuels because of the low carbon pressures. They're going to be around for decades before we can even hope to convert those. All right. Yeah, we spoke with Todd Neely on the program yesterday from DTN, and he talked about the clear flame diesel engine. It's an ethanol diesel that has now completed its road test. So it seems as though the industry is moving in that direction. Matt, as you look out, as we focus renewable energy, perhaps away from dense urban centers where electrical vehicles might uh, take take precedence pretty quickly and more towards that heavy hauling industrial usage does the industry need to change do we have to rethink how we're marketing and moving ethanol or other renewable biofuels i think we do but i think we're seeing it uh, whether it's the the this new clear flame technology trying to you know again aviation fuel use ethanol in aviation fuel in uh, some of those displacing distillates of jet fuel um, or uh, jet fuel or diesel, we're seeing it with this explosion in renewable diesel plants being announced uh, over the past six months, all driven both by the low carbon fuel standard in California, also by pressure from aviation. So I think it is happening. I believe at the consumer level, the piece that we're still missing, honestly, is the piece of trying to go and get as engines become smaller, more efficient, they're increasingly turbocharged. They're increasingly supercharged. It's amazing the efficiencies we're getting out of them and the opportunity for something like an E40. Uh, if we can really get uh, these vehicles coming out that, are, that require 93 octane or 91 octane, that is a huge opportunity for ethanol because then we're not competing against 87 octane fuel on a price perspective. At price perspective outside of the Dakotas, outside of kind of very large ethanol producing areas, 87 octane uh, or par grade unleaded versus E85, it's a hard value proposition. But if you drop that to E40 and suddenly you're competing against premium gasoline, then the economics radically change. I converted, I have a track car. Uh, a 1990 Miata that I used to drive on the track, I converted it to E85 simply because the price differential from 93 octane that it was tuned for to E85 is so large. In Ohio, it's commonly a dollar to a dollar twenty a gallon uh, between those two fuels. That's overwhelming, and that's an opportunity that I think sits before us in the biofuels industry. And that E40 would have enough octane to compete with 93 octane premium fuel. More than enough. In fact, as we look at tuning engines, uh, and so this is, I, I really over the last five years dove into kind of engine tuning as I've uh, increasingly started tracking cars. This obviously has nothing to do with agriculture, but it's funny how it does. Beyond about E40, the benefits to a high compression car really level off. Um, E40 is, it doesn't mean it's worse at E85, but the octane, the cool burning in the in the combustion mm -hmm. cylinder, you get almost all those benefits there. It's sort of an E30 to an E40 range. All right, folks, check that out on Blender Pumps near you. Dr. Matt Roberts of the Kern Mantle Group. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. 
So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're choosing exceptional weed control. It controls more weeds than any other soybean system and offers up to 14 days of soil activity on certain small-seeded broadleaf weeds. Plus, you get triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate when used with Extend Flex soybeans. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Claims are based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Pair with a strong weed management program. Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. National FFA Week is February 19th through the 26th, and FFA students across the country will be sharing their stories. I'm National FFA President Cole Bearlocker from the state of Washington. National FFA Week is a time to share what FFA is and the impact it has on members every day. And because FFA and agricultural education prepare students for careers, leadership, and the ability to face what the future holds, that impact is profound. Share your FFA stories during hashtag FFA Week. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA. Hopefully we'll be talking here in just a few minutes with Mr. John Linder. He's got some very cool news. We've heard him on this podcast, excuse me, this broadcast before. He is the chairman of the National Corn Growers Association, and it was recently announced that he's been appointed to the board of Maisal, the International Maize Association. So corn growers from Argentina, Brazil, and the United States working together. John was just appointed to that board. If we can get him on the show here, we'll be talking about that in just a minute. Well, John gets logged in. I wanted to share an update we got this morning from the Commerce Department. Folks, we have been talking about ethanol for some time. Excuse me, not ethanol, inflation. Ethanol's on my mind after today's show, but inflation has been the topic of concern at nearly every meeting I've had the chance to go to. Commerce Department reported this morning that despite nearly 7% inflation, we are seeing retail sales rise. It was announced this morning that retail sales rose the most in 10 months. We saw furniture as a big driver, cars, believe it or not, folks are getting out there and buying cars, and that is driving up retail sales. I had the chance to go past, I think, the largest Ford dealer in Iowa here a few days ago, and boy, that lot was still almost empty. So I think those folks who are finding cars, they are having to really pay up for it. And then the other place that was really shining in this report was non-store retailers. Think about your Amazons. Think about buying stuff on Facebook Marketplace. All of those type of non-store digital uh, places also saw huge amounts of sales. I mentioned this, and you know, I think agriculture, we buy stuff at retail. But importantly, as we're watching inflation and as we're watching the Federal Reserve talk potentially about raising rates more than they had discussed back in December. The rise of inflation and the pace of, of inflation's growth is going to depend on consumer behavior. If the American consumer is seeing higher prices and still going out to write that check, what's that tell uh, producers or, or manufacturers? Well, it says there's there's still room to raise prices higher as their input costs rise. Yesterday on the program, we spoke just briefly about the producer price index number that was released yesterday morning. Producer price index, this is a measure of the cost of goods that goes into anything that's then manufactured and sold. So it's the the mid the middle of the supply chain is what the producer price index is tracking. And economists were expecting it yesterday to climb. And it did, and it climbed a lot more than anticipated. So we saw the total PPI number come in at 9.7% year over year. That's 10% inflation at the manufacturer's level. So that's the middle of the supply chain, folks. Then it's still got to get put on a truck. It's still got to get stocked on shelves or it's got to be marketed on the Internet. And then it's still got to be picked up by the end consumer. So the price hikes we're seeing in that producer price index are potential price hikes that could be making their way down to the consumer level. So with the uh, we coming back to this, uh, this report from this morning retail sales report, we saw them rise 3.8% in January, that's after coming down two and a half percent in December, they show that the advance was nearly double the economist guess heading into this report, most uh, most economists watching this report were expecting a figure of around 2% growth in retail sales. So to come in at 3.8, that tells us that consumers are feeling confident. It also shows how the improving labor market is helping give the American consumer that confidence. They know if they've got that job coming in, then they are that money coming in from their job, then they are going to be able to pay these higher prices even as they continue to work forward. So we are going to continue to be looking at that issue. This inflation conversation is not going to go away anytime soon. Earlier this week, it was announced that uh, Mr. Bullard, a Fed chair of St. Louis, might like to see as much as a 50 basis point hike after their meeting in March. That would, uh, well, it would double what the economist expectations are for Fed actions. So stay tuned. The Fed's going to get together in middle of March, and we'll hear then what could be going on with their um, 
uh, prices. We've also got news coming out of Russia and the Ukraine. Obviously, this is a story that we have been watching very, very close. Huge impacts throughout the agricultural industry. Uh, Ukraine corn and soy exports are very big. Russian wheat exports are very big. Obviously, Russia's impact in the energy market is huge as they're a massive natural gas exporter. And yesterday... The Russian government shared a video of tanks allegedly leaving the Crimean Peninsula. It was announced that their military exercises in Crimea are done and they are pulling their tanks back towards the center of the Russian country. That's what Russia announced yesterday. That was followed up by some comments from the Ukrainians who said, well, we saw the video from Russia too, but we haven't actually seen any real movement of troops on the border. So the international community is watching this. This is going to continue to percolate. We've still got the Olympics going on. The expectation was that Russia wouldn't make any moves while the Olympics were in place. However, we are seeing Russia make some cyber moves that was announced in the Ukraine that several of their defense issues, their defense uh, software systems were compromised or at least attacked. I don't know that they were compromised by what they assumed to be Russian cyber attackers. And that brings up something that uh, I heard from a friend of mine, a very smart man in the world of cybersecurity. We were talking about supply chain disruptions in 2022. And uh, you know, what if China shuts down their ports? Do we have enough truckers? You know, all the stuff we've been discussing. And he raised a new one for me, which was Russia's cyber attacks are very, they're getting to be better and better. And he goes, one of the major unreported issues that could cause a, a supply chain crunch in 2022 would be a Russian cyber attack on U.S. infrastructure assets. Obviously, we have no idea if that's going to happen. But as we think about potential black swans that could move markets big one direction or the other, a cyber attack might be the thing that kind of does it. Folks, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk to John Linder today. We'll get him back on. We'll talk about that appointment to Maisal later on. In the meantime, I hope you all have a fantastic day. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We'll see you tomorrow as we talk about the markets and everything else impacting agriculture. Take care, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, Call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.